This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Let's try it again. There we go. I tell you, we're barely getting this program off the ground tonight. And uh, I hate to be paranoid, but I think maybe Big Oil is listening. They heard the promo, and they don't want this show to get uh, to get underway. Tim Spreen uh, will vouch for me. We, we had a heck of a time just recording a promo. We had two studios just go kaplooey uh, down the hall. And, uh, and now this, and I was uh, running around looking for the mic switch. That wandered off, and then... I hit the, the on switch and I couldn't get on the air. Anyway, I, I mentioned big oil. Uh, I drove into a gas station tonight and the sign said, uh, we, we, uh, we take American Express, Visa, and MasterCard. So I filled up, I went in, and then they took my Visa, my American Express, and my MasterCard. Uh, it's crazy, oil prices. But um, it needn't be so. And we're about to learn uh, why. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But first of all, welcome to the program. Happy Thanksgiving. My American listeners scratching their heads saying, are we in some kind of a time warp? What's going on here? Uh, well, of course, the program does emanate from Toronto, Canada. And uh, uh, a very funny man lives up here in Toronto. He's a lawyer, but he uh, was also a comedian. Hart Pomerantz had a, a great line, the difference between Americans and Canadians. Americans shot their parents. We still send money home. Uh, meaning, obviously, the uh, the king and queen of England. Uh, but the other difference between us and our wonderful neighbors to the south is we celebrate Thanksgiving in October. The first Monday in October. Is it the first Monday or the second Monday? I've lost track. Anyway, it's in October, and of course, it's uh, the end of November, stateside. Welcome, welcome. Uh, we are going to launch into a very important discussion. What could be more important, really, right now with energy prices going through the roof? You're going to learn something, I think, that's going to shock you. I'm quite confident it's going to shock you. Everything we've learned about the, the nature of oil may be a lie. We all grew up believing that it is a fossil fuel, a bunch of dinosaurs went over to Saudi Arabia and died in a big pile. 
and uh, prehistoric plants, of course. And over time, these fossils became oil, which we refine into gasoline. And because it's a non-renewable resource and it's scarce, that somehow justifies gouging us at the pumps. Or as David Letterman uh, pointed out uh, a little while ago, technically the oil companies aren't gouging us, they're screwing us. <laughs> I'm not sure what the difference is, but we're about to find out. Uh, I am joined on, by, uh, on the line uh, by Jerome Corsi, who has a PhD from Harvard in political science and serves as a senior staff reporter for online news giant World Net Daily. His latest book is entitled The Great Oil Conspiracy, How the U.S. Government Hid the Nazi Discovery of abiotic oil from the American people. Jerome, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing good, Richard. It's good to be with you. Thank you. It's good to have you back on the program. First of all, uh, some definitions. Fossil fuel, that's what we've been told oil is. It's a fossil fuel. What is abiotic oil? Uh, abiotic means uh, not oil not created by any biological means. In other words, um, uh, abiotic a you know, like um, you'd say not biotic biological. So there, the the theory is uh, it's a well established theory, as we'll show you. Even the Nazis knew this theory. Actually, developed the the science of abiotic oil. Um, no ancient forest, no dinosaurs, no plankton, no living thing ever contributed to create oil. Uh, the abiotic theory is that oil is created by the Earth on a natural, ongoing basis, even today. Gen- the Earth creating oil today in the mantle of the Earth. And um, it's a completely abiotic or non-biological process. In other words, your introduction was correct. Correct. We've been lied to by science teachers and government um, you know, for generations. Uh, all of us, you know, taught uh, the incorrect chemistry in high school on. But uh, what the Nazis knew, and we've suppressed that knowledge in the United States and in Canada, it's known in other parts of the world that oil is abiotic, not a biological material. And that's what my book, The Great Oil Conspiracy, is all about. So if it's not a fossil fuel... If it's right. not created by ancient, decaying biological debris, correct? Then it is. You're saying it's replenishable, it's renewable, it's virtually inexhaustible. Yes, it's 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 extremely plentiful. It's renewable. It's being made all the time by the Earth on a natural basis, and it's a natural product of the Earth. It's not inherently toxic. You know, it's not old rotten things that are. Know, dangerous or detrimental to health, this is a natural product of the earth. The earth generates in the mantle of the earth. That's healthy to the earth. The earth is able to absorb it, and we can use fossil fuel not only plentifully, but we can use it in an environmentally safe way. It does not destroy the earth to use fossil fuels. And all of this, of course, goes against uh, much of the political correctness or the science people have been taught. And our, our fairly revolutionary ideas, even though the Nazis uh, developed the science, they c- created and, and figured out the chemical formulas by which the Earth produces oil, and we at the end of World War II had this knowledge readily available to us. 
Uh, we brought the Nazi scientists over to the United States. And this is the kind of thing that, again, uh, I'm sure for uh, your listening audience is going to, for many of them, be a great surprise. Others are going to say, uh, you know, it was obvious they knew it all the time, but, you know, when you think about it, you know, the, the, the questions get to be fairly ridiculous. How many dinosaurs does it take to make a barrel of oil? You know, as you pointed out, uh, all the dinosaurs did not herd the Saudi Arabia at the end of the Mesozoic era and die in a big heap. That's not why we have oil in Saudi Arabia, but not in other places in the Middle East. As I show in the Great Oil Conspiracy, the tectonic plates, the the basement rock in uh, Saudi Arabia is deeply fractured right where the oil fields are, and the fracturing in the earth permits the oil created in the mantle of the earth to seep up and pool in sedimentary rock where our geologists have mistakenly assumed that the oil was created. Jerome Kortz is with us, a senior uh, staff reporter for the online news giant WorldNet Daily, and his new book is called The Great Oil Conspiracy, How the U.S. Government Hid the Nazi Discovery of Abiotic Oil from the American People. Now, these uh, uh, documents uh, that contained these equations developed by these German chemists uh, that, that talked about how oil is actually formed, how were these uncovered? Well, the, the Germans in the Weimar Republic, uh, the two chemists that were most responsible for it, a chemist Fischer and another guy Tropsch, so these are the Fischer-Tropsch equations. Uh, they formulated these equations in the Weimar Republic, really trying to figure out Germany had um, no real resources of crude oil, and yet Germany needed abundant oil supplies to industrialize. Ultimately, for World War II, the Nazis needed oil. So the, the German chemists set out to figure out how the coal that Germany had abundantly could be synthetically turned into uh, diesel fuel, gasoline, airplane fuel. And the, that's what these chemists were trying to do. They're trying to figure out the synthetic processes whereby it could convert coal to oil. Now, they did that. But in the process, these Fischer-Tropsch equations uh, explained how the Earth makes oil because what they came up with was the a catalytic reaction that occurs under conditions of extreme heat and, and uh, pressure, temperature and pressure, such that um, uh, rocks or minerals that contain hydrogen and others that contain carbon will release the hydrogen and carbon. Uh, and a catalytic reaction with the presence of a catalyst like iron oxide or cobalt or many catalysts, you'll form hydrocarbon molecules, which are um, oil, uh, all the way through to the to the gaseous, I mean, the, the simpler forms of hydrocarbons like methane. And these equations have been uh, well understood and, and reasonably well developed. Uh, a lot of the material that was brought at the end of World War II, see, at the end of World War II, the CIA, then the OSS in the United States, and military intelligence actually brought a lot of these Nazi scientists back to the United States in Operation Paperclip, a secret operation that we denied existed and the operation paperclip files are now declassified i went to uh, washington silver spring in maryland to the national archives and got a lot of these documents and put them into the book you can see actually the photographs of the nazi scientists their fingerprints their backgrounds the intelligence estimates about synthetic oil uh, and what happened at the end of world war ii is when we brought these nazi scientists over in the united states 
we created some synthetic coal plants, but they weren't economically feasible because synthetic coal, uh, you know, synthetic oil from coal is expensive. Now, the Nazis had 80% of the fuel in World War II was synthetic. They had fisher trops plants all over the uh, country of Germany, and we bombed them extensively to put the Nazis out of the fisher trops oil business. But it was too expensive in the United States when crude oil in the 1950s was readily available. And so our scientists, our governments, oh, we don't, we'll just park these formulas. They're uninteresting. Uh, they don't give us really very good, uh, cheap oil. And yet they, they, the Nazis, and I quoted the book, said, you know, you guys aren't understanding what we have here. Well, the, you know, the Soviet Union did understand it. Stalin understood it. Our chemists told Russia they didn't have any crude oil, just like Germany. And Stalin said, nonsense, if the Russians can make oil, then I'm going to figure out what they know, and I'm going to make oil too. And what Russia started to do was find oil at deep earth levels, which is what these Fisher-Trops equations would predict you would do. All right, Jerome, uh, stay put. We'll take a timeout, come back, and continue to delve into the great oil conspiracy. So these oil companies are creating false scarcity in order to jack up the price. We've been fighting war. Blood is being spilt over something that is renewable and virtually inexhaustible. The evil continues. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. Keeping an eye on the new world order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free. 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. And The Conspiracy Show welcomes new affiliate KVNA-AM in Flagstaff, Arizona. So all the folks down in KVNA-AM in Flagstaff, welcome aboard. Glad to have you as part of our Conspiracy Show family. Jerome Corsi is with us from WorldNet Daily, one of my favorite online uh, publications. And uh, his latest book is The Great Oil Conspiracy, How the U.S. Government Hid the Nazi Discovery of Abiotic Oil from the American People. Uh, Jerome, you mentioned the Soviets. And uh, uh, just to recap, uh, uh, Stalin was told initially that Russia has no oil reserves. And yet here we are today. Russia is one of the largest largest producers uh, and exporters of oil. So he, Stalin um, found out what the Germans were doing, and he told his petrogeologists, just dig deeper. But if, if this abiotic oil is to be found uh, deeper, does it matter if it's inexhaustible and it's replenishable if it's really hard to get at? Well, it's a good question. But see, the technology, the fastest-growing part of the uh, oil industry right now is deep earth and deep water drilling. And uh, what, we, what people have not appreciated was that earth is, you know, the earth has oil in many different places, pretty, pretty much made throughout the mantle of the earth. Where it's going to seep up has a lot to do with bedrock fractures. So uh, Saudi Arabia ends up being a good place for oil because the Bedrock under the Saudi oil fields is deeply fractured. The Gulf of Mexico, uh, which was hit by a major comet at the end of the Mesozoic era, the the bedrock in the Gulf of Mexico is deeply fractured. Uh, The story I think is fascinating is that the Cantarell well, which was found, Mexico's one of its largest producing 
deep water oil wells was found by a fisherman named Cantarell who saw the oil bubbling up in the water uh, in the Gulf and didn't know where it was coming from. It's kind of like a Beverly Hillbilly story, you know, with the oil bubbling up in the fields in Oklahoma. And oil, in the, if you go back and read in the 1870s and 80s uh, the history, oil bubbling up in the fields in places like Oklahoma was a problem. They used to jar it and try to get it out of the fields because they didn't know what to do with the oil. If they weren't using it at that time, we didn't have a use for it as fuel, and it was you know, hurting and detrimental to the crops. So the point is that we've always had abundant oil. And even with, you know, we've, I've been told since I was a kid we were running out of oil. It's a peak oil theory. If oil is fossil fuel, there's only so many fossils, then they think we're going to run out of it. But when you look at the statistics, I was told as a kid we are going to run out of oil in the 1970s. I remember Jimmy Carter, president of the United States, wearing a cardigan in the White House telling us, turn down the thermostat. Right, right. We're running out. Well, today, Energy Information Agency of the United States says there's 1.38 trillion barrels of oil in worldwide reserves. That's more than ever in human history, despite the fact that consumption's doubled since the 1970s worldwide. If oil is replenishable, Jerome, then I would imagine we should be seeing some evidence of that. For example, have there been oil fields that were drilled dry, presumably, and now we're seeing those refill. Yes. Uh, and also you see the technology improving. We're able to recover more oil out of wells than we thought we was there. Uh, you find the phenomenon of oil wells that were drilled pretty well dry, and then they realized there was another reservoir of oil beneath those that was supplying the upper reservoir. See, the mistake our geologists made was to think that the sedimentary rock was creating the oil, that somehow there were these sedimentary, you know, the biological deposits in the sedimentary rock that was getting cooked into oil. And, you know, that's just... And then those were the deposits they found, so they thought once they drilled those, all the oil was going to be found in sedimentary rock. They didn't, they didn't imagine that the oil was formed at deeper earth levels. and It was pooled in the sedimentary rock, and so the, you know, the, the expectation was that once all this top-earth oil had been drilled, that we weren't going to find it anymore. That was all there was. Uh, but the fact is that you know, the, no fossil ever created oil. If you think about it hard, I mean, the, a fossil, for instance, let's take a petrified, piece of petrified wood. It's silica that's filled in the cellular structure of the wood and metamorphized at some point in geological time, but the wood was long gone, deteriorated and rotted away. It, it never turned into oil. I, mean, I tell people the Bible says, you know, dust into dust. It never says dust into oil. That's not the way the <laughs> right, right. biological process works. But if this is true, Jerome, then not only uh, do we have, you know, the government uh, suppressing this information, but... I don't know how many uh, uh, you know, oil company employees out there who would have to also be perpetrating this, this myth. I mean, how do you keep something like this quiet, a secret, for so long? Well, what happens, I think, you know, Richard, is that the... Yeah, I, I've done a lot of reading of uh, Thomas uh, Kuhn's book on the 
you know, how scientific paradigms, revolutions in scientific paradigms. And what happens is there gets to be a mindset. You know, all of our geologists begin to see the oil as biological fossil fuel, and they all then make the logical deduction if it's fossil fuel, there's only so much of it. And that gets locked in kind of like an idea that, you know, the ancient idea that the sun revolved around the earth. So if you want to stand up and say, wait a minute, no, it's the other way around, you know, the earth is going around the sun, well, you're first of all going to be laughed at, you're going to be ridiculed, and it's going to be, you know, the kind of thing that is you know, considered to be a conspiracy theory or considered to be, um, you know, just foolish, even if it's true, because it goes against the grain of the conventional wisdom. And so, you know, the whole idea of peak oil was this, you know, somebody working for for Shell Oil, a guy named M. King Hubbard, basically took a napkin and drew a bell curve, you know, normal distribution curve, and said, that's oil. First we have a lot, then we start using it up so we reach peak oil, where it's maximum production, and then there's none. Well, that's never happened. And then the peak oil theorists say, well, that's all right. We, we we know it's going to expire. We're going to be done with the oil. It's just that we we have to move it out a little further. It's not going to happen in 1970. It's going to happen in you know 2030 or 2040. Uh, and they can't let go of the theory because it's so locked in. Once this kind of locked in theory is there, it's got it's got tremendously adverse political um, consequences. We let the Middle East and countries that are you know, not necessarily favorable to our political goals, uh, dominate us. We are we pay out uh, trillions of dollars in foreign exchange reserves to buy oil uh, from foreign nations when we could actually produce it ourselves. And we fight wars over oil, going back to, you know, the um, original wars in the Middle East when Great Britain decided it was going to convert from coal to oil with its navy, decision Churchill participated in. You know, all these things can be avoided. I mean, people don't realize what's right in front of them. Canada is producing oil right now today out of the tar sands in Alberta, Canada. Yes. Well, that's non-conventional oil. It's going through synthetic processes to be converted from tar into gasoline or into crude oil that can be then shipped and turned into gasoline or diesel fuel. But, you know, people don't realize that that's a synthetic process. It's a process that is able to be understood chemically. You know, and it's, it's not just because they say, oh, well, but the tar was biological, so the synthetic process is still biologically determined. No, the tar was never biological. The tar, I'm sure, is the same as the shale that goes through the Rocky Mountains, that ends up in the oil fields down in the Gulf of Mexico. Seems like there's a whole range here of hydrocarbons that are coming out uh, across these cracks through the Rocky Mountains up to Canada. And depending upon how the oil came out of the earth and how it pooled, it could be the tar sands uh, in Canada. It could be metamorphized into shale on the Rocky Mountains. And it could still be coming from deep earth levels into the out of the Gulf of Mexico as crude oil. Jerome Kors is with us, senior staff reporter for World Net Daily. His latest book is The Great Oil Conspiracy, How the U.S. Government Hid the Nazi Discovery of Abiotic Oil from the American People. If it's not 
scarce, if oil is replenishable, renewable, virtually inexhaustible, how much should we be paying at the pump? The question should be dramatically less, Richard, dramatically less. I mean, we're, you know, we're easily half of what we're paying, maybe less. And again, it's also, these are the government regulations. You see the scarcity of oil and the fossil fuel theory, the tox, toxicity that oil is not a natural product of the earth. Governments have to regulate it to protect us. Well, it also then affects refineries. And what's going on in California right now, where oil is skyrocketing to over $5 a gallon for, for gasoline at the pump, is because of the refineries being closed or having you know difficulties operating. And you try to open a new refinery in the United States, which we haven't done for 30 years, and you're going to face 10 years of litigation from the Sierra Club. It seems like they're, they've failed in terms of trying to create a scarcity at one end because this oil keeps coming out of the ground, so they're trying to now create a scarcity at the other end by, uh, by reducing capacity in the refineries, as you say. And, and what I've uh, heard and, and been told uh, by researchers is that it is the oil companies that, in fact, are helping to draft the environmental legislation that it prevents these refineries from being built. In, in fact, I've found oil companies, you know, in cahoots with environmental companies, funding them. You know, they even see it in the advertising. British Petroleum, which now is BP, says they're beyond petroleum. Well, that's nonsense. But British Petroleum is nowhere in the world beyond petroleum. They may put some money into these green technologies, but the green energy technologies are also boondoggles. It's an ideological agenda. Uh, driven by uh, uh, you know people who do not like industrial activity, don't like hydrocarbon fuels, think that they're intrinsically wrong or evil or harmful. Would you know that it's not the case? We can burn clean coal. Uh, yet our environmental protection agency under President Obama is closing down 200 coal burning power plants in the United States putting people out of work in states like West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, uh, because, they, they, you know, ideologically the Obama administration says, oh, yeah, we're, we're in favor of clean coal. That's in their platform of the Democratic National Party as running for re-election of Obama. But you try to look at the EPA, the EPA is putting daily into effect regulations that's shutting down our use of coal left and right. And yet the United States is like the Saudi Arabia coal. It's insane that we're not using this resource to reduce costs of electricity and energy, especially when we're in the middle of a global recession and, and cheap energy would help to get us out of it. What would happen, though, to the U.S. dollar, which, let's face it, is already in trouble? It's a petrodollar, essentially. Uh, what would happen to the U.S. dollar if it suddenly became um, widely known that oil is renewable and virtually inexhaustible. And, and if the price of oil were to drop, what would that do to the U.S. dollar and thus the U.S. economy, which is obviously very fragile? Well, as I point out in the Great Oil Conspiracy, if we could be oil independent, we wouldn't have to put all these you know, billions of dollars overseas in foreign exchange reserves to buy oil. So the first thing it would do is it would strengthen the dollar by not having such a, a drain on our balance of trade, which foreign oil, purchasing foreign oil, does. And secondly, if we could get cheaper energy, it should stimulate economic activity, both in the United States and Canada. 
I mean, right now we're getting an enormous amount of our energy from Canada. And Canada, compared to the United States today, is actually doing much better economically. Look at the the value of the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar, which have been you know, consistently almost at par, whereas in, in decades earlier, the Canadian dollar was always valued much less than the U.S. dollar. So I think it would strengthen our currency if we could tell the people the truth. And you know, The United States, surprisingly, even though most people in the United States believe we're out of oil, We've used it all. We're today producing more oil in the United States than we have for decades, and we're by 2013, or 2030 rather, Goldman Sachs has predicted the United States could be energy independent, a net oil exporter. All right, Jerome, stay put. We'll uh, take a time out, come back, and continue to delve into the great oil conspiracy here on All Places, The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, Blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash Richard Serrett, all one word, last name spelled S-Y-R-E-T-T, slash Richard Serrett, all one word. Uh, Jerome Corsi is with us from World Net Daily, and the, the new book is The Great Oil Conspiracy, and uh, putting forth some pretty compelling evidence that we've been bamboozled, folks. Oil is not a fossil fuel. It is renewable and virtually inexhaustible. So we should be paying a heck of a lot uh, less at the pumps, and there's no need to be putting boots on the ground and in harm's way um, in in uh, the Middle East uh, to, to pull this stuff out of the ground when we've got plenty right here uh, in North America. Now, uh, further evidence, uh, Jerome, that oil is uh, not a fossil fuel. If it if it if it uh, is true that we're finding hydrocarbons all over the universe or all over the galaxy and uh, on, on Titan, one of Saturn's moons and so forth, that, that uh, suggests what? Well, that's right, Richard. It suggests, again, that hydrogen and carbon can form and get together, form hydrocarbons, uh, hydrocarbons without the use of any dead biological material. So, you know, this was, this was on Thomas Gold, who was a very famous astrophysicist at Cornell. Uh, he actually helped develop radar with the British during World War II. Uh, uh, Gold was doing um, spectrographic analyses throughout our solar system. And um, he that was his specialty. And uh, he wrote a book called Deep Hot Biosphere, arguing, again, that oil is abiotic, not biological in origin, uh, because he was finding, Thomas Gold was finding hydrocarbons all over our solar system, and he knew there was nothing alive or supposedly alive uh, anywhere except Earth in our solar system. The, the, the Titan is the great example. Titan, the big moon of, of Saturn, which now the uh, NASA and the European Space Agency, we've sent probes to Titan. It's filled with methane, liquid methane, various forms. Uh, the methane's been sampled and 
Uh, NASA and the European Space Agency said it's the isotope of carbon that is abiotic. Of course, you know, I guess the alternative would have been to say that the dinosaurs maybe were space travelers and maybe they died up on the moon, you know, on the moon of Saturn as well. Uh, but it's all nonsense. And I think anybody who thinks about it, you know, this whole idea of there's organic chemicals, we study organic chemistry, and that's supposed to be hydrocarbons. Well, there's no special brand of, chemis- of chemicals that are alive. I mean, it's just hydrogen and carbon. And they can combine, hydrogen and carbon combine in these kind of catalytic reactions. Uh, best described in the Fischer-Tropsch equations the Germans developed before World War II. And I think as our scientists begin looking at these equations, we're going to have a, a new mindset about not only finding deep earth oil, but realizing how many different synthetic methodologies exist to create oil from tar sands in Canada or from shale. Um, and, you know, oil is truly abundant when we think about it, not as a scarce fossil fuel resource. Now, the, the, uh, the proponents of the fossil fuel theory uh, say that when you pull oil out of the ground, it contains, is it carbon-12, which is sort of the, I guess, a byproduct yeah, it, of photosynthesis? That's right. If it, that's, there's, there's two different isotopes of carbon. One is usually associated with uh, organic and the other with inorganic. And, um, you know, you can find some of the oil. One of the other confusions is that when oil does come out of sedimentary rock, it has biological debris in it. But that's only because it's passed through rock that has biological debris in it, not because the oil was formed from some biological material. Uh, you can also find oil um, coming out of the uh, crack that goes down the center of the Atlantic Ocean. You find hydrocarbons. They've been surveyed by the Woods Hole uh, Oceanographic Expedition. And uh, the methane coming out of the center of the Earth, the uh, middle of the Atlantic Ocean, is also abiotic carbon, hydrocarbon methane. So, you know, we know that these processes are going on in Earth and so in our solar system, and the, the, you know, the change in mentality comes to realize that the mantle of the Earth is actually a perfect environment in which these catalytic processes can be going on and hydrocarbons being formed. In a completely natural process, the Earth is alive. These processes are going on right now in, 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 uh, inside the Earth, uh, which is truly something we know very little about. Uh, but as we begin to understand it, I think we're going to find that you know, the, the manufacturing of hydrocarbons is one of the things the Earth does on a constant basis. All right, we'll um, step away here momentarily. Jerome, stay put when we come back. I'd like to know, I mean, are there any whistleblowers inside big oil who are trying to alert the public to this incredible bamboozle? I mean, it's worse than a bamboozle. This is pure evil. People are dying. We are spilling blood over the extraction of oil, and it's not necessary. It's not a scarce resource. Back with more of my conversation with Jerome Corsi, the great oil conspiracy. Stay with us. Jerome Corsi stays with us a few moments uh, yet, a senior staff reporter at World Net Daily, and the uh, brand-new book is The Great Oil Conspiracy. Uh, 
Jerome, are there any whistleblowers inside Big Oil uh, who are trying to get this information out to the public that oil is renewable, replenishable, inexhaustible? Uh, there have been, but, you know, again, the culture of the big oil companies doesn't permit much discussion of the issue. Uh, the, the idea in government and, and oil, big oil, is that it's fossil fuel, and that's kind of imposed very strictly. I mean, I, I think anybody who would seriously start talking about abiotic oil would probably risk their jobs. Uh, but, the, you know, the information is available. Uh, the Russians have used the theory, the Russians... The, abiotic, the Russian and Ukrainian theory of abiotic origin oil is one of the most you know well-known theories around the world. I think probably the United States and Canada are the last two countries to really hold on to this fossil fuel uh, theory with any uh, seriousness. Uh, most mostly, I think when the oil companies are finding oil at the deep levels, you know, miles below the surface of the Gulf of Mexico and off the coasts of every continent in the world, uh, I believe the oil companies would be ready to abandon the idea of, um, of fossil fuel, except, you know, when they abandon the oil, they give up an awful lot of control, and they give up a lot of, you know, grip on people who are worried we're running out of oil. Uh, but the evidence is so overwhelming that you know, we're awash in oil. I mean, I, I remember just going back two or three decades, Canada was considered to be out of oil, too. And yet, look at these tar sands in Alberta. Canada is a tremendous exporter of oil, natural gas. If if this pipeline's not built and the United States doesn't begin taking more Canadian oil, I'm sure Canada will sell it to, to China. That's the plan. Now, I, I mean, I understand why big oil would, would, uh, would want to uh, perpetrate this, this lie, if this is in fact the case. And I, and I, based on what I've read, I, I tend to think it has a great deal of credence. Uh, I understand why big oil would want to do this. Why would governments go along for the ride and, and, and basically imprison their own people? Because that's what's happened. We are now living in this prison planet. Well, I think, I think Richard, the answer is that governments love to create regulatory mechanisms and control. I mean, look at the huge, in the United States... Department of Energy, and then we've got the Energy Information Administration, the Energy Information Agency, we've got the EPA. The EPA is massive in control of our economy and shuts down all kinds of activity, industrial activity that you know the EPA finds one way or another detrimental to the environment, protecting the environment at great extremes under an idea that human beings are almost intrinsically harmful to the environment. You know, abandoning the idea that we are, you know, somehow or other stewards of the earth, or that we can improve the earth or improve the condition of the earth, both for you know, animals and human beings, or animals, human beings, and plant life, which I believe we can. Uh, so you get this tremendous attitude against oil and against hydrocarbons, against a prejudice. The solar look. Solar and wind are never going to be more than 1% or 2% of our energy needs. The, the energies just are not robust enough. It's, and, and in the United States, we try to support these technological companies. They end up being opportunities for graft. I mean, friends of the president get these companies. They get hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, stimulus money or tax-free loans or guaranteed loans, and the companies go bankrupt. But isn't the technologies it, don't work. Jerome, is there not an argument, though, that could be made that if it was known that oil is inexhaustible, 
uh, and replenishable and cheap, uh, then we would waste it. It would be used in a very wasteful manner. I don't think, I mean, I don't see how you, you know, can waste. The idea would be that to make oil of, and hydrocarbons available as cheap energy and stimulate economic activity, uh, manufacturing, etc. I mean, you know, the, the fact is people don't uh, uh, economize on, on use of fuel and energy unless they're forced to. And then it's a great detriment to a quality of lifestyle. Uh, when we have had cheaper energy at different periods of time, it was still abundant. And, it, we, you know, we're not wasting it in that sense. I mean, it, the idea of, you know, there being a perfectly efficient way to use energy is maybe never achievable. But I'd rather have it available cheaply and stimulate economic activity. Certainly the opposite, with this great government control and fear and everything, you know, we're, we spend, we put you know, billions and trillions of dollars over time in the Middle East were funding countries that, you know, become enormously wealthy, Saudi Arabia, other oil-producing countries in OPEC, countries which do not necessarily have political interests of the United States or Canada in mind, and yet we're, we're, you know, fighting wars, we're uh, engaging in various kinds of economic blackmail over the, from these countries uh, because we maintain this myth of economic dependency on a resource, hydrocarbon resources that we've convinced everybody are scarce, and fossil fuel. If the if people realize, look, we can, we can uh, drill deeper, we can use lots of synthetic processes, we can convert shale, we can, we can do all kinds of conversion of resources economically, to produce hydrocarbon fuel at cheap prices, it should be liberating, and we should be moving into an environment, an area where people can have access to energy without these adverse, horrible political consequences. Let's grab a quick call. Uh, John is in Toronto. John, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Jerome Corsi. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to mention the first great conspiracy, which was that Henry Ford created the Model T to run on corn-based ethanol. Gasoline was a junk byproduct of kerosene nobody used. And the first great conspiracy was prohibition, which stopped any alcohol production and shunted the future to gasoline and Standard Oil, Esso, Exxon, and its founder, John D. Rockefeller, who died in 1931, worth today's equivalent of $90 billion. And he is still the richest man to have ever lived, thanks to gasoline. And today... Ethanol is now the great savior for humanity and transportation, and at what cost? It's all money, isn't it? All right, John, uh, thank you for that. Jerome, comments? Well, I think those are good points. I mean, the, the fact is, if we, you know, we're allowing uh, the true energy technologies to develop, uh, hydrogen technology, which yet has problems in terms of condensing hydrogen supply, but you, know, you, can, run a ga- you can run an engine on water because of the hydrogen in the water. What, what people need to understand is that hydrocarbons are available, and they are available such that we shouldn't have to create Henry, you know, especially John D. Rockefellers, or name them in the Middle East that are in OPEC, because we're getting these tremendous concentrations of wealth based on the based on scarcity and government regulations which favor the wealth being created. You, know, you can still have very 
successful oil-producing companies, but do so within a reasonable basis where people understood that the resources of hydrocarbons were available, uh, that energy was something that we could... The Nazis didn't have a problem. Nazis said, we don't have any crude oil, so they figured out synthetic oil. And the process of doing so, they they figured out the formulas which showed the Soviets Oil existed at deep earth levels. How are we going to uh, bust through? Uh, you know, you're line, we're lining up against big oil and the government. I mean, we're talking about a, a, um, a hundreds of billions of dollars annually at stake here. How, how are you going to break through that? Well, it's one of the reasons, I mean, I appreciate your show tonight, Richard, because it gives me an opportunity to get this information out to people. It's why I wrote The Great Oil Conspiracy, because... If, you know, I wrote this book. It's not a hard book. You don't have to have. You don't have to be a chemist or, you know, political scientist to read the book. It's relatively short. You can read it in a couple settings. It's, it's got the footnotes, so you can go get the sources. But I want to open people's minds to get beyond the lies they've been told since all of us told since we were children about this oil being fossil fuel scarce, running out. All of it's a lie, and and as soon as you see these kinds of lies, Richard, you should be aware immediately this is just political control from government in order to concentrate wealth to the detriment of the vast majority of human beings that want and should be able to engage in free economic activity with resources that are abundant and should not be cheap, or we shouldn't have to fight these ghastly wars. Uh, with foreign countries that we really have no interest in. Any idea how how many people have died uh, fighting in wars over oil? Well, I think it's almost incalculable. I mean, I think you can go back and make arguments that a lot of our wars have been over oil. You can certainly find you know, roots of oil uh, control going back in World War One and World War Two. I mean, you know, the before World War One, uh, you had Churchill intervening. And participating in Iran and Iraq, Iran especially, uh, you know, because Persia was an oil-producing country, and the British were there, you know, at the turn of the century, and the whole colonialization. I think of a lot of, you know, the world has to do with resources that the industrialized world wanted to gain at the expense of uh, undeveloped nations and third-world countries. This whole type of thinking needs to be done away with. Okay, so now we've read the book. What do we do next? How do we, how do we fight this fight? Well, I think we demand that uh, we uh, allow the... I think we've got to attack it both from the point of view of government regulations and also look at the you know, concentrations of wealth that are going into big oil companies around the world. Oil companies would be happy to make a reasonable profit. I think everyone would be happy to have them do so. But with oil being produced... You know, in in greater quantity, and made to be in greater quantity on the market, the incentives incentives should be for the oil companies to get the oil produced and out there, uh, with you know people understanding that we can have clean coal, that we can burn hydrocarbons cleanly. You know, we're not destroying the world to take the tar sands. We can not only repair the environment after the tar sands are used, but improve the environment that we could get oil uh, and natural gas out of um, Alaska in abundance. And, you know, this, this, the Russians understand this. Why, why does everybody think the Russians are so interested in the Arctic? The Russians know how, much, how many hydrocarbons can be accessed through the Arctic. 
And these are the kinds of thinking we've got to do in order to uh, prevent these, these, you know, blocks, these strangleholds, which end up only creating political divisions to the advantage of politicians who want power and to the advantage of, you know, concentrations of wealth, which benefit the John D. Rockefellers when truly the average person ought to be getting the benefit of cheap energy. Is big oil coming after you? Well, you know, they've not, been, I've not been, they've not been very friendly towards me, let's put it that way. I'm a, I'm a very controversial writer anyway. I'm constantly, you know, my job at WND as an investigative reporter, I'm not, I'm not out here to win friends. I'm out here to try to tell the truth. Well, we, uh, we wish you well in that endeavor. It's, uh, it's an uphill battle. Uh, you certainly... Um... I'm just confident, Richard, that if people hear the truth, and begin to read the great oil conspiracy. I mean, I've got all the Nazi science. I've got the pictures of the Nazis. I mean, I've got, you know, not that I'm endorsing the Nazi regime. It was a horrible, evil regime, but it had some brilliant science. We should take advantage of that brilliant science and not bury it. The Great Oil Conspiracy, and uh, they can order that uh, online. Uh, Amazon, can they order that through WorldNet Daily? Yes, Amazon, WND Superstore, uh, Barnes & Noble. It's electronic a book at a cheaper price in all formats, and it's a hardcover book in the stores. It can be ordered hardcover or electronic through Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, WND Superstore. It's readily available. Jerome, thank you for this. Uh, Richard, thank you for the program. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jerome Corsi. All right, and you can find out what's upcoming up on this very program on my website, www.richardserrett.com. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome, dear friends. Again, want to welcome the new affiliates to The Conspiracy Show, KVNAAM, down in Flagstaff, Arizona. KVNA, welcome. 
You want the last word on ghosts? Well, you have come to the right place. And we've got the man uh, waiting on the phone line right now to discuss uh, ghosts. He has just released the, uh, the second edition of his very hefty tome, uh, the culmination, really, of a half-century in the field of paranormal research. This is entitled Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places. And over the next hour, we are going to delve into uh, haunted houses and apartments, poltergeists, shadow beings that attack their victims, uh, spirit parasites that possess, ghosts that return to bid farewell, Inspirational messages from the other side, apparitions of religious figures, ghostly encounters with famous men and women, animal ghosts, domesticated and wild, haunted churches, cemeteries, and burial grounds, creepy castles, and ghostly royalty, and much more. Brad Steiger has been a paranormal researcher, as I say, for over 50 years. He's the author, co-author, get this, this must be a Guinness uh, book of, this must be a Guinness record. He is the author or co-author of 170 books. I've not even read 170 books. Uh, 17 million copies. More than 17 million copies in print. Again, his latest release is Ghost, Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places. He first published articles on The Unexplained, and they appeared in 1956. He has now written more than 2,000 articles with paranormal themes. Uh, and from 1970 to 1973, his weekly newspaper column, The Strange World of Brad Steiger, was carried domestically in over 80 newspapers and overseas from Bombay to Tokyo. He was born in Fort Dodge, Iowa on February 19th, 1936. A great pleasure to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Brad Steiger. Hello, Brad. How are you? Hello, Richard. At, at last we get together. Yes. <laughs> well, you're a, a busy, busy man, and uh, it's a great uh, pleasure to have you on the program. Well, it's a great pleasure to join you tonight. Tell me about the second edition. Why a second edition of Real Ghosts? Well, the second edition of any book is, first of all, you know, a feather in the cap of the author, which I, I humbly accept the additional feather to my hat. The first edition was extremely popular and gained a wide readership, and people write and say, thank God I'm not crazy because I've been having manifestations in my house, and then they share them with me. And then I, through the book, met very other very prominent uh, researchers in the field, so when the publisher said, you know, I think it's time we do a second edition, I went through the now, you know, prodigious files, especially after 50 years and, and gaining new material from this book, and I invited a number of other researchers whom I respect to send some of their favorite cases. And I think we turned out just, you know, a, a, a fabulous book. Uh, people say, you know, if you want to find out about ghosts, this is the place. And and I really appreciate that. I appreciate the accolades from the readers and the people who have responded to it. And, you know, we no matter how frightening a ghost encounter is, it does tell us something very important. There is something within us, Richard, that does survive death. 
yes, matter it, how scary some of these are, and some are very positive. Some are some are beautiful. As as one, uh, and I was quite surprised. One scholarly uh, review said. This was a book that, at the same time, might run chills up your back on one page. The next one will bring tears to your eyes, because mm. some of these stories where the loved one returns, you know, are very moving, and they are very convincing. You know, the, there's a lot of um, uh, parallels between uh, the UFO field and, and, and ghosts. And, mm. and what I mean by that is, you know, there was a UN report that came out a few years ago, 150 million people, 150 million people have seen a UFO. So the odds are if you're in a room uh, with, with, with somebody, they, they've seen one or they know someone who's seen one, and it's the same with ghosts. Right. But people, they don't want to come forward. They're waiting for an invitation to talk about it. Is that what you found when researching this book, that people, oh, you have yes. to pull it yes. out of them? Well, let me give you a good example, Richard. Um, I'm asked from time to time to speak at Parents Without Partners groups. And I will ask, and the first time I, I wasn't really, you know, expecting a great response from this question, but I ask, how many of you do feel that you have made contact with your deceased spouse? And nearly every hand goes up in the room every time. Hmm. Now, I, I think that's very, very representative of what it means to be human. We know that, we know since we're children that I think we're hardwired to accept that we have a potential that we may not realize and that we have a capacity that we may not always use and that there is something within us that does survive physical death. Now, I know the cynic will say, yes, this is grief. This is mourning. This is the desire to remain in contact with the deceased one. Who can say if in some cases that's not true? But others tell stories about an insurance policy that they didn't know their husband had. And he appears and tells her where to find this policy which he had hidden, not in the bank, but behind a loose brick in the basement. And there it is, and providing just the money that she needed before she lost the house. Now, those kinds of stories, you know, I, I admit they sound like they're, you know, from a, a television scenario, but they're true. They happen to people, and there are some very well-documented cases of loved ones that have come back and, and said where the deed was, where the, uh, the various papers were, or, or where something significant to the spouse could be found. I suppose the cynic would say maybe on some level of consciousness the spouse maybe saw him hide it or had an awareness, but they say no. So in those cases, you know, you, you have to take them at their word and they have demonstrable evidence that contact was made. Uh, Brad, were you, in the beginning, I mean, you've been at this for over half a century. Did you go into this, this field as a skeptic? No. No. I, I, was, I grew up in a home uh, that was um, haunted. 
and it had been I, i'm i'm a son of the soil i'm an old i'm a farm boy and this old farmhouse had been a stagecoach stop in years gone by and the house had been built on the site using a lot of the lumber of the old stagecoach stop so my sister and i were continually awakened at night by <laughs> men and women walking through our bedrooms and from time to time they would stop and look at us which is very eerie feeling most of them would just pass through like we're witnessing a, a movie and of course we're going back to 1940 and 41 now so mm -hmm. there wasn't television in the house but it was like a movie they were just walking through with a kind of glow we had raps we had poundings we had footsteps up and down the stairs we had the sound of uh, horses and a carriage being driven down many nights we'd all get out of bed to see if this time it was really someone in horse and carriages but always it was just uh, that same sound and that same so in a sense that didn't prepare me you're saying well you're very well prepared in a sense, though, Richard, and this was really a shock to me, none of these manifestations as a child, I mean, once, you, once you grow used to them, once you accept their reality, and you learn not to talk too much about it because other people may not be having those same manifestations in, in their homes or near their homes, but, but they're non-threatening. When I went out and began earnestly researching various homes, I again expected to see primarily what I call psychic residue, just psychic impressions somehow impressed in an environment and then activated at certain times, and then you watch it. You can't interact any more than you can act with the figures on a movie or television screen. And this entity has no consciousness. It's just in perpetual replay. Exactly. Exactly. So when I encountered entities that, uh, in my arrogance, I had angered and did such things as lifting all of our research group in the air and then dropping us, or in one case, when the whatever it was kept trying to lock me, close, close the door, excuse me, in a room where a series a series of violent, horrible murders had taken place in family after family. I mean, this house was cursed. There was a long, in each case, the husband shot the wife with a shotgun. Three times in the basement, another murder took place in the garage. And, and this house was really cursed, really. It sat empty most of the time, and it should have sat empty all the time. But at any rate, when I was investigating one of the murders rooms, the door kept trying to close, even with my two friends, both 200 and some pounds, trying to keep it open. So when I left, I said, okay, if the blankety-blank thing wants the door closed, close it and lock it. Then we went upstairs. We were barely upstairs, and there was this shattering sound, and whatever it was just shattered that door just mm. took it right off its hinges. That's when I realized that I really 
didn't know that much as I thought I did. I thought I had ghosts all wrapped up in neat little theories. Sometimes they fight back. Listen, yeah. uh, Brad, stay put. We'll take a time out. Come back. Continue our conversation with Brad Steiger. 50 years plus as a paranormal investigator and his latest, the second edition of Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits and Haunted Places. Some calling it the final word on ghosts. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario. 1-866-740-4740. 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. A real heavyweight in the field of paranormal researcher with us tonight, Brad Steiger, and he's just released the second edition of Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places. Uh, uh, Brad, it seems to me we have a lot of different types of entities. We have the, well, I don't know if you would even call it an entity, we have this, as you call it, a psychic imprint, which is just this residue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess buildings, some buildings have this ability to absorb emotional memories and you know, it's the classic case of the the man with the top hat coming down the staircase exactly. at precisely the same time on it. You know, every night, uh, these things have no consciousness. We can't interact with them. And then exactly. we have these encounters with these benevolent, almost angelic uh, uh, beings. It may mm-hmm. be a, a, a loved one who's passed on. And then the ones that you just described, these malevolent um, entities. So, do you have a handle on? You know where these things come from. What are they? I mean, are the benevolent ones just people that were badass individuals uh, when they walked this earthly plane, or who, what are they? Well, that's kind of the tradition. But I've I've come to think, Richard, that we're dealing with separate entities. But but we put them in the haunting category because. They like to hang out in those places, or they they seem to be connected, or maybe they use that as a tool to create fear, which they somehow feed off of. Hmm. I think these, in many cases, are multidimensional beings. Now, when I was younger and still teaching in college and and uh, looking all of this, what I thought, I had my experiences as a child, so I knew these experiences were real. I had encountered them as I grew older, but I pretty much had it wrapped up, you know, psychic residue, and they can't harm you. They're just like the, the whatever it was that walked through the bedroom as a child. But when I encountered these, now if someone would have said demonic entities, well, at that time, I was a little too intellectually based to accept the idea of demons or negative entities. However, the older I get and the more I've researched and the more I researched and came up against these entities, I'm able to project and say, and especially, I prefer calling them spirit parasites. And I think that these entities can actually jump in, now there's quotes around that, jump into individuals when they're, oh, they've overindulged in alcohol or drugs, or they're depressed, or they're 
allow their greed and their negative feelings to take over them, then I think we, they, but we as humans, let me say that, become susceptible, we become vulnerable for this type of invasion. And then when the host body is deceased or the host body moves on, these entities stay in places where they know they can project fear. And as I say, I think they survive on that. Now, we also have cases, and and this time of year, every newspaper in every city is talking about the phantom nun or the phantom dog or the phantom woman in white that's seen on such and such a road because it's Halloween. So we talk about these traditional hauntings in an area. And, of course, they're all local for the local paper. But many people report seeing these. So many people report seeing these. Well, I don't think that has anything to do with life after death. And let me say that I separate ghosts from the phenomena, the mystery, I should say, of life after death. But I think these phantoms are seen by many people year after year. And I think they feed on that psychic energy until they become independent entities and they're like psychic marionettes. So if you're going to the old burned convent and looking for the phantom nun, if your belief, coupled with the belief and the sighting of thousands of people over the years, that nun will come walking out because it has gained this energy over the decades and become, as I say, like a psychic marionette. But not to discount the possibility that there are ghosts that uh, that are in fact the um, the soul of the the dearly departed that return to say farewell or to absolutely. deliver a warning those exist as well absolutely absolutely and that's in the category uh, as as you said Richard and I appreciate it very much you, you named some of the chapters and some of the categories I don't know if we really can separate things too often or too finely, but there is something within the human mind, isn't there? We love categorizing. We love separating things. It's kind of like magic. If we can give a name to something, then we feel we can understand it, right? Sure, it's how we make sense of the universe. Sure. Right. That makes sense for us. So that's why I put them in so many different chapters. Uh, life after death certainly is a category, which, and this I, I thought was very interesting when I moved in with my family to a house that had been haunted, and I had been warned, and I had gone, and I had felt, but I thought it was something that we could um, exercise, so to speak, move in without any problem. But we really had a maelstrom of uh, quite violent activity. And the younger of the children, a daughter at that time who was uh, right around six and seven years old, she was the most vulnerable and she suffered the most. But as you can tell, whenever we get together as a family, you know, and inevitably we start talking, even though the kids are in their 40s and 50s now, we still go back and relive some of those. And I learned something new that the children had experienced every time. But the younger daughter, who is now a mother of two, I think summed it up very well, that no matter how frightening those experiences were, 
when it came to the final analysis, what they were telling us is there is something within us that survives physical death. Because in this case, it was decidedly the spirit of the man who had lived before who despised anything modern. When we moved into that house, Richard, it didn't have running water. It barely had electricity. It, 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 so I modernized it, and that upset very much this entity. Now, I was warned by one of the son-in-laws of the person who had lived in the house and died. They said, boy, you, you run all over the countryside investigating haunted houses. You're not going to have to go out of town anymore because, mm. my friends, you are moving into a haunted house because Papa doesn't like strangers and Papa doesn't like modernization. And I see you're already digging a well. You're already starting to put modernize it. So I, I was warned, but I didn't expect quite the activity that we received. Why don't, why doesn't everyone... Uh, see ghosts. Is there something unique about the observer uh, in those people that do, in fact, see ghosts? Is there something unique about you, for example? You know, I've just come, and laugh if you will, I've just kind of come to that realization. Um, maybe since I was indoctrinated as, as a child, Maybe I I am more perceptive. It's, it's the same with my wife. You know, we'll we'll go into places and and uh, she'll perceive uh, something and, and describe it exactly to uh, others, and they'll say, "Oh my gosh!" And and with, there's been a couple times we've been set up to go into a room in a hotel uh, or um, uh, excuse me, the the um, bed and breakfast, bed and breakfast. Huge mansion, bed and breakfast. It was really incredible. Each room was made up like a different country. It was just phenomenal. And we were set up in that time to have a particular bedroom. And, of course, uh, <laughs> it, it performed for us that night. Sherry kept telling me, what's wrong? Why are you up walking around? I said, I'm walking around. I'm trying to sleep, but I just saw you. You're sitting in the chair. You were holding your head. Is there something wrong? And I said, the only thing wrong is you won't let me sleep. But she was perceiving this man walking back and forth, pacing the room. And then when she tried to settle down, she felt a hand clasping hers, and she thought it was mine. And as she squeezed it, she found it wasn't my hand. It oh. was the hand of a little baby. Oh, dear. Well, in the morning, of course, everyone was looking. What, anything happened last night? We were going to lecture that day. So because Sherry had been up half the night, she said, uh, you go to breakfast. I, I need to meditate. So they're all looking at me, and I said, you know, the things that we had perceived. Well... The original owner of this mansion, that was the master bedroom, and his wife had died in childbirth. He had been pacing all night and, uh, you know, by his wife's bedside, but she, again, the baby's hand. Uh, I mean, it's just maybe Sherry and I, uh, maybe ghosts like us. Maybe, maybe that's why. 
we perceive. And I hadn't really thought of that, even though you may chuckle and say you must have. And I said, it, it's only when I'm kind of going through things again here is that maybe my early childhood, when I perceived this manifestation, nearly every night, nearly every night something was going on till I learned just to ignore it and live with it. Maybe certain people are more susceptible, if you want to say that, to seeing ghosts. Some people, because they are so involved with their life, so involved with uh, concerns and problems and dealing with harsh reality. But then again, I've had skeptics, total skeptics come with me and, you know, become instant converts when they saw something they couldn't explain, when they saw the full-body manifestation, the materialization. I mean, that, that tends to kind of wipe away skepticism. Uh, Brad Steiger with us here on The Conspiracy Show, the second edition just uh, out. Real ghosts, restless spirits, and haunted places. There are some amazing photographs uh, in this uh, book, Brad. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a, a photo taken after a 1995 fire at Wem Town Hall in, uh, in Britain. And uh, in the picture uh, is this young girl who obviously wasn't, or supposedly wasn't there when the picture was 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 taken. Right. Uh, and in 1677, a fire started by a young girl destroyed the original building. And there are a number of uh, uh, a little baby sitting on a tombstone in a cemetery. The, the picture of the baby that was the, the deceased child. A woman. Uh, sitting on a bench in Bachelors Grove, a cemetery in Chicago. She wasn't sitting there when the photograph was taken. Uh, um, amazing, chilling photographs. Um, the skeptic would say, well, in this age of Photoshop, how right. can you, how, how do you investigate these photos? How do you gauge whether they're the real deal? Well, I personally, I send them to um, a photo lab uh, where the people, you know, have no particular axe to grind and then I send it to another photo lab where the individual would love to find that they're authentic but is even harsher on them than the other laboratory because of the painstaking uh, devotion that he's made to psychical research over the years. We try to do the best. Now, again, orbs. We get hundreds of orbs photographs, and probably after this interview I'll get more. And I don't mean to be harsh, but most of these are dust motes, droplets of water, even insects, you know, that somehow capture the lens. Now, the true orb, because I've witnessed them on many occasions, they're not just floating. And most of the people say, and I saw nothing, but when the film was developed, there was the orb. Well, that's kind of your first clue. Orbs, when you see the authentic, genuine thing, they're moving. They're darting around. They're coming toward you. They're going up in the ceiling. They're, I, I've had an automobile where they come right at the car when I'm driving and go right through the car and keep on going. So that's an orb, which you know I, I have both uh, described in the in the book. Another thing about the second edition, I have to say, Richard, is that in the first edition. I had a number of cases that either I had investigated or others, and now, 20, 30 years later, I hear from the children. I hear from the children to say, 
that sounds like our house. I remember when someone came and I had to leave the house and go to the neighbors. Mm. And, uh, you know, sure enough, and, and this person then, uh, in this particular case, provided me with a diary that her mother had kept of the haunting experience, which is invaluable to me as a researcher. Let's uh, take a time out. To, sorry, Brad, case. let me just let me just uh, jump in. We'll, uh, music's creeping up. Okay. And we'll, uh, we'll take a time out. Back with Brad Steiger, the final word on ghosts here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. And welcome back. Brad Steiger with us, a giant in the field of paranormal research and his uh, latest Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits and Haunted Places now in its second edition. Uh, Brad, I began the conversation talking about the similarities I find between ufology and uh, uh, ghosts, the study of ghosts. And that is within the ufology field, there, there is this divide. You have one camp that says... Uh, E.T. friendly, here to save mankind from himself. And then you have the other uh, camp that says it's a deception, they're demonic, uh, you know, they they do not have our best interests in mind. And then within within the ghost field, there are those as well who believe that, uh, you know, there is... um, uh, a deception going on that even that's not your uncle tom who's come back from the grave to 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 warn you or to say goodbye it's it's a deception what are your thoughts on that well one has to always be aware of the cosmic tricksters as i call them especially and i say this now um w- with love because i know many many wonderful mediums and then there are some who perhaps are more interested than in having their palms crossed with silver. If you approach on that level of desperately seeking Uncle Tom, as you said, that, first of all, you can be deceived. Secondly, if you pursue it, if you decide to get a Ouija board and you're going to make contact yourself, you may indeed make contact with an entity that identifies itself as your Uncle Tom, but is indeed rather a trickster and will lead you down a very convoluted path that could eventually lead to illness, nervous breakdown, and a wide variety of negative responses. So one does have to be cautious. This is not to be taken lightly. I, I, the Ouija board is not a game. Seeking contact in the spirit world cannot be taken lightly. I have dealt with, especially when I was near the college campus and would work in my office late at night, often there'd be a knock at the door at midnight or whatever. (laughs) A group of girls from the dorm had been working a Ouija board, and oh, it had started out wonderfully. We're doing research. An entity came through, and we gave a name, and we looked it up, and he actually had lived here. And then we found out this, and we found out that. And then all of a sudden, just when they were really captivated, the entity became vulgar, became obscene, became uh, uh, everything you would not want to have happen when your little mini seance. 
the kids who, after the football game on Friday night, say, let's go look at the old haunted Hankins place, or let's go to my room, uh, let's go back to my home and go up to my room and we'll work the Ouija board. That, that really is not the proper way of psychical research. We have a two-edged sword in the media right now. We have an endless, I don't know how many there are, uh, shows of paranormal activity, and, and they're on so many of the cable channels. Now, this has opened up a greater receptivity on the part of the general audience. That's true. But it's also presented ghost hunting as you go to a dark place at night, and uh, you shine a light, and you have all kinds of fancy electronic equipment, and then you walk through the house saying, I think something touched me. I think something touched me. What's that over there? And, and it looks kind of romantic in one sense. It looks kind of exciting. But, but unfortunately, on, on these shows, you know, we, we never really see any resolution. We never really see an entity being uh, brought home to rest or brought to the next dimension or brought to the next level. So one does have to be cautious. I always put up red flags. But, no, in, in the UFO field, which I, as you probably know, have yes. written 24 books in that area, and uh, way back in the 60s, I, I became really fascinated with the contactee movement. And after I had sat with numerous contactees across the United States and Canada, all the provinces of Canada, they're everywhere, people who claim contact. And I saw the entity that was communicating was saying essentially the same things, whether he claimed to be Munka from Mars or from Alpha Centauri or wherever. They were saying essentially the same things that I heard spirit mediums channeling from their guides, their spirit guides, saying in spiritualist camps. Oh, let's delve into that a little bit further when we come back. Brad Steiger, the final word on ghosts, here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Brad Steiger uh, with us. Brad, just before the break, you were talking about, well, it seems to be to me that what you're suggesting is there is an underlying explanation for many paranormal uh, phenomena. One, perhaps, uh, explanation that might explain shadow people, the, the old, I don't know, old hag syndrome, uh, alien abductions, that there's some common denominator here. Well, I was saying specifically with the UFO phenomena, Again, no way am I saying there is not extraterrestrial life somewhere. I'm not saying that it isn't possible that we've been visited. But what I have come to conclude, and a number of researchers have agreed and, and begun to pursue it on their own, is the concept that what we're dealing with, Richard, is an earthly phenomena that has been with us ever since and before, before we stood upright, and may even had a role in our evolution. But it's earthbound, it's 
more comparable to the we folk, the fairy phenomena, because if you look at almost any UFO case, the lights in the skies, the people who claim they were abducted, the people who claim that they were gone for a year, and it turns out they're only gone for a few hours, or they think they were gone for a few hours and they were gone for a week, missing for a week. It seems to be the same phenomena, the same intelligence. I, I termed it years ago in my book, Mysteries of Time and Space. I said it's like some intelligence is playing a game with us, a game that we have to learn the rules. It's the reality game. And we have to play it. We have no choice. It's the only game in the universe. And we have to learn. And, and again, this intelligence, what is it doing? Is it leading us into the future? Or is it trying to keep us at a certain stage of development? Is it trying to encourage our, our uh, new technology? Or is it using certain things to, to control us, to keep uh, to keep us in the certain pen or the certain stage of development that, that they want us to be. Or, uh, we, we see that before, just, just years before, the Wright brothers took off in their, their little uh, paper box of a plane, that we had the 1897 airship phenomena all over the United States, all over England, Australia, New Zealand, all over the civilized world, people were seeing this object that looked something like a steamship that had paddle wheels. It was flying in the sky. The inventors would land and say, and say, where are you from? Well, they didn't say they're from Mars. They didn't say they were from Venus. If they landed in Texas, they said they were from Iowa. If they landed in Iowa, they said they were from Texas. And they're always inventors. Now, is this some secret society that created this? in advance, or again, is this an intelligence that reveals itself to us in ways we can understand, that we, the individual, can best understand in the encounter? So whether someone sees an angel, someone sees a space brother, someone sees a gray, I said so often in the percipient, the percipient of UFO phenomena, who you are is what you get. It will reveal itself. If you consider extraterrestrial life like the Martians who are going to enslave us, the Martians who have come to serve man as a recipe, then you're going to see them as negative, as demonic. Whatever this intelligence is, it reveals itself at the level at which the observer, the percipient, can perceive it best. Let's go back to some of these inspiring stories of... of um... Uh, tales where people have encountered uh, an apparition. It appears to be uh, the uh, the soul of a, a dearly departed loved one. They come with uh, a, a warning or or to bid farewell. Share me with with us perhaps one of your your favorite stories in, in that category. Again, I, I have to say that uh, so much of them, and I, I give credit, were sent to me by a a uh, Protestant pastor who had collected these all of his lifetime and was nearing the end of his earth span and sent them to me so that he felt they would get circulated that way. And he has many accounts of the death of a children, 
death of children that would just so horribly you know manifest for for some parents who have to go through that that grief where he has seen the angels entered the room and they've taken the soul off with them there have been and that's the same accounts of individuals who had i think this is very interesting they had been taken on a preview trip if you will to heaven before they themselves passed and i have a number of those in the book uh, sometimes with a very elderly person sometimes very young person who testifies before they make the final transition that they are at peace they are comforted by having taken this astral journey to the other side, met their loved ones, saw their friends, they even saw pets. They saw a dog that had passed years before. So they were assured that the next level would be one of comfort, would be one of joy. And there are a number of those, and you have to marvel, you know, is this a fantasy device of the human mind? But again, the testimony and the peace that it delivered. I guess as a pragmatist, you have to say whatever it was, it allowed that person to go to the next level of the great mystery uh, with a positive approach, with, with a peace, a peace that passes all human understanding. You mentioned that you, a lot of these stories were passed on to you by a, a, a man of the cloth. Yeah. I always found it ironic that um, um, many of these types of stories perhaps provide some of the greatest evidence for uh, life after death, which is you know one of the central messages of religion, and yet it is often organized religion which is stifling this kind of conversation. That has baffled me all of my life <clears throat> I I had a near-death experience when I was 11 and I was taken to a place and I was shown things and in a sense now please understand me don't think this is rapid ego but for a moment I saw at least on my level of understanding I saw the meaning of life, you know, however you want to play a trumpet in the back of that or make a, a Monty Python joke. But I saw, now I can't tell you it now, I can't repeat it, I just know for a minute I had that illumination. I felt, and I, both Sherry and I come from an evangelistic background, so I returned convinced that what I had been told by friends and family that I was destined for the ministry I was convinced, you know, this would be, I have seen, and I'm going to start collecting proof. I'm going to research life after death and have proof that what they're preaching from the pulpit, I can say when I'm up there, I've seen, I've talked to others, here's proof. Well, what I found was being called the child of Satan, being called insane, being called all those things that broke my heart and now, of course, I'm pursuing this um, certainly belief in the great mystery, belief in the, the wonders of the universe, but uh, not pursuing it from uh, an organization with those kind of boundaries on belief. 
Yeah, indeed, it it is um, it is ironic, as um, you pointed out. Incredibly ironic. Yeah, you know, this is proof. Psychical research is offering proof. Although on the other side, we have the Catholic Church, traditionally a very obviously a conservative institution, and yet of late, this sort of speaks to the other side of in some of the categories you cover in terms of the dark side of some of these hauntings. The Catholic Church now is starting to open up a little bit about. You know, they're talking publicly about uh, their need to recruit more exorcists. They're talking about uh, updating, uh, you know, the training methods. Uh, recently came to light uh, that Pope John Paul II had performed an exorcism in St. Peter's Square unsuccessfully. Um, right. What do you make of that? Well, I think this is, again, a coming out of something that's been happening for years. Uh, I should mention that at one time, and I, I don't know if it's still going or not, I have to be honest and admit that, I should have kept up, that's my responsibility, but I used to speak regularly at a group called Spiritual Frontiers Fellowship, and that was composed of clergy people from all of the different uh, denominations. And they were extremely open to this. So uh, we, I, one should never make all the statements, should one? One should always say it, it's not everyone, it's not every member of the cloth that, that has this antipathy. After all, I received that incredible collection from a clergyman. So we have to recognize that many, and, and I get many letters today. So I, again, I'm not painting and saying they're all... The Roman Catholics have always, in a sense, been more tolerant toward visions, to apparitions. And I think because of a demand for a changing clergy, people in the various denominations are beginning to be more open, more tolerant toward this field. Uh, Brad, what do you make of um, electronic voice phenomenon? Are you... Do you believe that it's possible to capture spirit voice on on an audio recording device? I suppose it's possible. I have I have to be careful here because I have good friends who um, put a great deal of stock in that phenomena. Um, I have written little essays for their their publications saying I, I'm really somewhat skeptical. The ones I think I have only heard a few. I spoke several years ago at an international conference of voice phenomena. Scientists uh, literally from all of um, Europe and the United States. And uh, I heard some that were quite convincing, and I heard some that for the life of me, all I could hear was, you know, the scratching of a needle or the or static. Or, but I have heard a few, and I think it's possible what... What I kind of stand a bit back from is when I look at some of these programs and they're saying, is anyone here? Then they hold up the tape recorder. I don't think it works quite that way. And in fact, I think there's a mechanism that can be against it because I think of all the times at which we had recordings going and all of our voices there, and even though we all heard the spirit voice, it just didn't pick up on tape. So I'm not saying, you know, that that's not a law because I said it either, but but I am somewhat skeptical of the EVP uh, phenomena. Uh, what's up uh, next for you, Brad? Um, I'm sure you have several books in the works. What can we expect next? Yes, Sherry and I are working on Real Encounters, 
which will deal with people's personal contact and interaction with encounters with UFOs, with we people, with poltergeists, with, uh, you know, shadow people, with, with the entire range of this field, people who have had dramatic, incredible accounts. And then we're trying very much to theorize, to answer, to say how much is our own psyche, how much is an external stimulus or psyche, and does it take one and one to make two, or are these independent uh, interactions going on all the time? Brad, congratulations on the second edition of Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places, and thanks for your time tonight. Thank you very much, Richard. I've enjoyed it. Brad Steiger. My thanks to uh, Tim Spreen. Uh, coming up in the very near future on this program, we'll talk to a woman who will tell us all about this miracle maker, this uh, incredible healer down in Brazil known, of J- known as John of God. And we'll also talk to Marshall Barnes, who's rewriting the rules on time travel and says he's very close to completing work on an actual working time machine. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.